spirit of the old-timers. It was a different game in those days, Red. A mighty different game. You bet it was, Leo. Mighty different game. I know because I'm Hans Wagner out here in Pittsburgh. I was playing ball before McKinley was elected president. Getting the game now is different. In my time, you got, you got in not because the book said you hit and set the percentage where somebody looked your teeth and x-rays your ankles or labeled you primers a bit and just plain cow. You had to be tough in those days to get in. And you had to fight. And you had to keep a fighting because all the teams were fighters. That's the way it went. Players have changed, too. Back in the old days, they were rough, ready, and tough. Today, a crowd of ball players standing in the hotel lobby looks like a bunch of young businessmen or college boys waiting around for co-ed. Some of them even wear ties. Today, most of the players in baseball are in it because of a well-paying job. And the players of today are really smart. They get the money. When I started to play ball, my first salary was $35 a month for Steubenville High in league ball. $35 a month. Take the bath, boy. Makes twice as much as these days. Baseball is a big business now, and the player deserves everything he gets. It's just like I miss the old rough and tumble. Maybe it's because I never got civilized. In my days, the Indians were still scalping the trappers out west. Not wearing silk pants for a night game in the Yankee Stadium. And John Wetland one more time set. And here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez down. A fastball swung on and it's a deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and it is. Get out the line, Brandon. The mustard this time, Grandma. From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, seals down, both sides up, prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where... We collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, team heads? I mean, is it just me or is spring baseball in the air? I, I can literally smell it in my clothes. I don't know where you are geographically listening to this right now. But down here in beautiful Pauly's Island, South Kakalaki, it feels like our 10 days of winter this year are over. I mean, really, I'm so blessed to live in a state and a beach environment that has such an amazing year-round climate. 
Uh, I literally wore sweatpants twice this winter. The other 363 days, it's shorts and casual wear, flip-flops. A real beach bum, baseball degenerate. And I know some people have yet to thaw out this winter, but here, it just feels like spring baseball. Hopefully, wherever you are, regardless of your seasonal weather environment, you can feel the light and the optimism on the horizon. Baseball is officially back and we're about to do this crazy MLB dance all over again. Uh, I want to welcome all of you here into my little sandbox this week from my loyal OGs who have followed and supported my endeavors from day one of my now six-year digital audio video career to all the pod surfer, surfers who decided to barrel up in this wave and gave, give me a listen. Thank you so much. I'm truly honored to have anyone take time out of their 24-hour day to celebrate the game of baseball with me. And I got my man, 12 Gauge Productions, Big text, Gage Gian, what's cracking, my dude? How you doing today, brother? I'm doing good today, man. Um, you know... Just getting through the work week like everyone else. Yeah, to daily grind, right? Man, am I excited for today. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I know you told me you don't really have a lot of knowledge about Hannes Wagner, but we were talking about our experiences in, in the great city of Pittsburgh before we uh, got on the air here. And, uh, you know, and you were actually telling me you, you love Pittsburgh, right? I do. Yeah, you know, I spent some time there. Um, you know, they, they got that 6'7 shortstop O'Neill Cruz out there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I love it too, man. And the food, the culture, and I was telling you, like, uh, PNC Stadium has some of the most beautiful baseball uh, uh, statues around that stadium. And one of them is today's topic, Hannes Wagner. I was trying to give you a little heads up on who he is and all. And, uh, you know, he's definitely, like, one of the big Pittsburgh Pirates. I mean, he's he's really, he's probably the first superstar of the MLB. So I'm, I'm grateful to get into this with you today. And both of us love the city of Pittsburgh. So uh, you've been to PNC. I've been to PNC. So some of this will be pretty some pretty cool information I'm hoping for you here, brother. So uh, let's break a leg and get after it. What do you say? Yes, sir. Let's do it. All right, brother. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, Spotify, Apple, iHeart, Chromecast, you name it, BKP is there. I'm all tangled up in the web, brah. Um, if you're on a platform that gives you an opportunity to rate and review my performance, please do so as you see fit. I skirt, I stand by my brand, and my mission is to spread the gospel of baseball throughout the world till my last breath. If you are fairly new to BKP, this is where I try to give you an, an educational, biographical account of all the moments and personalities that have been woven into the fabric of baseball and the world. I've covered over 140 years of baseball and 64 shows now. I've done player bios. We got a great one today. I've done the history of stadiums, nine in total, six still in use today from the oldest Fedway Park in uh, historical order, all the way up to Guaranteed Ray Field for the South Side Sox in Chicago. I also did uh, three throwback cribs last year in Shy Park, Crosley Field, Polo Grounds. Uh, those stadium shows are about to pick back up. We will be diving into one next week. I try to give you, you know, like a whole broad spectrum of media, baseball, culture, scandal, and, you know, try to weave it into how it relates to the history of the game. And I really, truly feel like uh, my show catalog, it, it, it reflects that. So take a look at it. But look, folks, 
I'm going to try to get this show rolling today. We got a lot of territory to cover this week, uh, but I do have an announcement that I want to make. Backwards K Pod will be doing a bonus show the third week in March as we get to, uh, you know, as we get within a week or two of opening day 2023. Now, hopefully, I'll pull this off and it's going to be a good time. I'm looking forward to the 2023 season, of course, like many of you are. Uh, we're going to hit on some possible storylines of the year, but really the show will be about giving you, the audience, a chance to participate in my annual Manager's Death Pool. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to let 60 people in the pool. I'm going to reach into my Magic Orioles hat for a current 2023 manager's name. Two members in the audience will get that manager's name. If for any reason that manager loses his gig first, those two audience members will win a prize. We're still working on the prize details, but look... It won't be a Ferrari, but it also, it ain't going to be a stick of gum. I'll make sure it's a good baseball-related prize. Also, that runs concurrently, meaning if another manager gets fired after that first guy, then the next two people will win a prize, and it's going to run till the end of the 2023 season. So, there are a couple ways to get into the manager's death pool. You can go to Twitter. Uh, say you want in on hashtag managers Deadpool. You can find that at back underscore K underscore podcast. You can email the show and I'll put you right in backwards kpod at gmail.com. And of course, well, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook group page, the most interactive and comprehensive baseball page in the book. You can sign up there. Also, on that bonus pod, I may do a kangaroo, uh, kangaroo quarter case or two. Uh, if I get a couple of good cases from the LTBP and uh, Facebook page, I've done this before. In fact, honestly, I believe I'm the only one in the history of pods to ever have a baseball kangaroo court on pods. Uh, I'd like to do it again on this uh, bigger stage that I have now. So we'll see. Should be fun. Then again, um, that is going to be a bonus back on K-Pod. And that's going to be the third week of March. Uh, I, I did get a lot of great feedback on last week's show about the 1984 Detroit Tigers. I think my Gen X listeners enjoyed the nostalgia. And uh, I got a lot of great responses to uh, who would win between the 1984 Tigers and uh, the 1989 A's. I mean, a ton of great responses. And I want to share some, but... I think I better hold off this week and show those next week. So, I just want to get this going on here. Um, I'm definitely going to share some of those comments next week, though. Before, uh, because, well, honestly, they were great opinions on both sides of that coin. And they were well thought out. And um, those are, like, the real, you know, they're the best baseball arguments to me, right? So, folks, if... I can just get you to say goodbye to all of your loved ones on the platform and climb aboard our time travel train from here as I call all aboard as this week we will be setting our sights and our destination to 1874, coal country, western Pennsylvania, the tiny borough known as the Chartiers, where we will begin our study of the legendary and prolific Hannes Wagner. Uh, however, while we're on our en route to our destination, it is with a heavy heart that 
The baseball universe says goodbye to Tim McCarver, who died a few days ago on February 16th, 2023, of heart failure at the age of 81 in his hometown of Memphis, Tennessee. He was about as durable of a catcher as you will ever find in the history of baseball. He was twice an all-star, a two-time world champion, and he played on four teams in over four different decades. McCarver was able to transcend time because after his playing career was over, a whole new generation of C-Meds, they knew him for his shrewd analysis, his literate use of metaphor, his command of storytelling, and articulating sound baseball thought. As well as, you know, this penchant for predicting the next image we might see. And quite often, he was spot on. His broadcasting career spanned another 30 years. From his start in Philadelphia in 1980 to his famous pairing with Ralph Kiner in the Mets booth, he had stints with the Yankees and Giants as well as his national appearance on four different networks. Through his informed perspective and that hints of Tennessee moonshine tenor in his speech patterns, he was widely recognized as one of the game's most familiar voices. Of course, like any long-tenured broadcaster, he dealt with his share of criticism by people who could never do his job in a million opportunities. They would say he talked too much, belabored the obvious. Some felt he was sometimes impressed with his own cleverness. Deion Sanders once took exception to his criticism and dumped a bucket of water over his head in front of everyone after a game. And such is the life of a public broadcaster. There's there's always a, a fucking hater. I, I think the only announcer I've ever seen escape that type of hater uh, wrath was probably Vin Scully. I rarely ever saw Vin get trolled or... You know, whatever that happens, you know, happens on social media. Like, I might have seen it two times, and, you know, maybe he got trolled, and whenever that happens on social media, like, the two times, maybe, that I saw it happen, that troll was instantly eviscerated uh, by other comments. Like, merciless stuff. So, Vin is truly, like, the one guy where I don't feel like there's, you know, this visceral hate and trolling of him you know, that much. Uh, even Art and, uh, even Art and Giants fans, they don't go there. But look, Tim McCarver had his detractors. I was never one of them. I thought he was great. Uh, never was his insight and analysis so profound as the bottom of the ninth inning, game seven of the 2001 World Series with the score tied and the bases drunk. In a title-clinching game, McCarver warns the Yankee fans that the infield of the Yankees are vulnerable. They're playing in to catch the runner at the plate. And because Mo Rivera, uh, facing left-handed slugger Louis Gonzalez, has a penchant for busting these lefties inside, left-handed batters, you know, they break bats versus Mo, dropping bloopers in the shallow left field. So, with the count 0-1, Rivera jammed Louis, who fought it off his fist practically, perfectly plays uh, opposite field bloop that saw Derek Jeter uh, but you know he probably would have surely swallowed that up had he been playing halfway in anticipation of a double play ball that that game was over and the Diamondbacks shocked the baseball universe with their first world title in club history McCarver he called a total of 24 World Series contests starting in 1985 for ABC when, it was rep- when he was the replacement for Howard Cosell and I, I never knew that as a player, 
He is probably best remembered as the primary battery mate for two of the greatest pitchers in baseball history. I'm talking Bob Gibson, Steve Lefty Carlton. He was the dude behind the dish in 1968 when Gibby destroys the league with his superlative 1.12 ERA, the lowest ERA by any hurler to this day. Uh, Lefty joined the Cards in 1965, and McCarver caught his first All-Star season on in 68-69. Uh, McCarver gets traded to the Phillies in 1970, and I bring that trade up because it would change the course of MLB forever with, you know, ramifications that are still felt today. This was the trade that the Cards tried to send Tim and Kurt Floyd to the Phillies but Flood refused to comply with the trade, and he took his case all the way to the Supreme Court, where he would eventually lose. But this was the beginning of the unraveling of the oppressive reserve clause, where ballplayers began this fight for the right of free agency. Carlton would also be shipped off to Philly in 1972. He won 27 games for an atrocious 59-win uh, Phillies team. McCarver then goes on to have stops in Montreal, back to St. Louis, and then Boston, where his career looks to be ending. The Red Sox released him in June of 1975, and the Phillies decide to bring him back to reuni- reunite him with Lefty, whose production had started to wane since McCarver had left. The Phillies make him Carlton's personal catcher, and they have the youngster Bob Boone catch the other starters. And from 1976 to 1979, Carlton won 77 games and the second of his four Cy Young Awards, while the Phillies made the playoffs three of those four seasons. So, I tell you what, most people younger than me by just five years or so, probably my partner here's age, you, you probably only know him as the voice of the ball game on the TV. But let's take a long look at his credible playing career. Tim McCarver, 21-year MLB career from 1951 to ni- I'm sorry, 1959 to 1980. Again, that spans over four decades. A multi-sport star at Segregated Christian Brother Academy in Memphis, Tennessee. He was recruited by Notre Dame, Alabama, and Tennessee to play football. He was also pursued by the Cards, Giants, and Yankees at the same time to play baseball. And McCarver chose to play baseball because of, you know, the chance to get that cash up front. And at 17 years old, he signs with the St. Louis Cardinals for $75,000. A career 28.3 war, 1,999. 1,909 games, 6,026 plate appearances, 590 runs, 1,501 hits, 242 doubles. He averaged five triples every 162 games with 57. Not bad for a catcher. 97 career home runs, not a prolific power bat, 645 home uh, RBIs, 61 stolen bases, 47 times caught, and... While he didn't have an explosive power stick, he had discipline, he had a good eye, 548 walks, 422 strikeouts, 2,148 total bases, and a 271, 37, 388 slash, which, look, that's not bad for a catcher who is really more valued for his defense, pitch calling, and decision making behind the dish. A 725 OPS and a 102 OPS plus. Two-time All-Star, two-time World Champion, 
runner-up for the 1967 uh, NL MVP, Orlando Cepeda, 2012 Ford C. Frick Award. He's inducted to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, 2016 Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame. And if you want to go deep into this nerd analytical rabbit hole like I'm prone to do sometimes, I would say compare his game and stats to guys like uh, Jim Sundberg and to some extent Thurman Munson. And I have some sound here by McCarver. I think uh, I think Gage has it loaded up here. Uh, he takes a look back at his incredible baseball life, and this is what he had to say. When do moments in life become memories? I'm not sure, but maybe it starts with a flutter in your heart or a gasp in your throat. And it- oh, what happened? What happened? When do moments in life become memories? I'm not sure, but maybe it starts with a flutter in your heart or a gasp in your throat and ends with just the hint of a tear in your mind's eye. Maybe it's the magic of October, because when it comes to baseball, I have never felt more moments to remember than in the World Series. My first behind the plate was in 1964. I felt the radiating power of Mickey Mantle every time he came to bat, even with his osteomyelitis at an advanced stage. I could hear him groan when he swung and missed, but oh, when he connected, it was something. In 1967, I saw Triple Crown winner Carl Yastrzemski, after going 0-4 for 4 in Game 1, roll the batting cage out of the bowels of Fenway Park to take extra batting practice after 163 games. It worked. Yaz homered twice in Game 2, and the Red Sox even the series, eventually falling to the Cardinals in seven games. 1968. The Detroit Tigers won, despite the heroic efforts of my battery mate, the iconic, iron-willed Bob Gibson. He struck out 17 Tigers in Game 1 and won seven straight World Series games, both World Series records. I always like to work fast. Tim walked out in front of the mound and he was pointing at the scoreboard. I turned around and I looked at the scoreboard and I tied Sandy Koufax's record of 15 strikeouts. And so I says, yeah, okay, fine. Give me the ball and let's go. Tim called a tremendous ball game. What made Tim special was that after maybe an inning, he and I were pretty much on the same path. After, I guess it's 50-some years, we are definitely the best friends uh, in the world right now and uh, I think it's going to stay that way. 1985 was my first year in the booth joining the incomparable Al Michaels and Jim Palmer. I was a rookie all over again. I was very excited when Tim McCarver was assigned to the 1985 World Series. It's about 10 minutes before we're going to go on the air, and I look over at Tim, and he looked very nervous. And he surprised me. So he said, let me ask you this. Are you more nervous before being one of the World Series as a player 
or as a broadcaster. And he looked at me wide-eyed and said, Are you kidding? As a broadcaster. Four years later at Candlestick Park, the earth moved violently before game three, testing San Francisco's courageous populace. If you're in an earthquake, 15 seconds seems closer to 15 minutes. But I remember for one very petrifying moment, there was a feeling that we were going to get pitched out of the booth and drop maybe 50 feet to the ground. And that would have been the end of that and on national television as well. And in 2001, the cataclysmic events of 9-11 shook our nation. You could feel the goose-bumped electricity of games four and five at venerable Yankee Stadium. privilege you know i have witnessed 27 fall classics in the last 50 years in person either squatting sitting or standing a remarkable point unbelievable and that's more than i could have ever asked from this fascinating game Now we welcome you inside our broadcast booth. I'm Joe, and that's the guy you just heard from, my partner, my friend. Here we are after uh, 18 wonderful years together. Uh, I don't know who's going to replace me next year, but I will guarantee you one thing. This guy will make you better, and I mean much better. And it's been a privilege and an honor to be with you, Joe and all the talented men and women behind the scenes throughout the years. 34 years ago, my obligation shifted from the field and the players to the booth and to you, the viewers. Fairness and accuracy and honesty have always been my goals, along with teaching you something you may not have known about this great game. I hope I've achieved those things. Thank you very much. And now, thank you very much, uh, Mr. McCarver. And I know that that uh, audio was down a little bit. I'm sorry about that. That's uh, that's just in the tape. Sometimes it's just tough finding good tape. But, you know, I didn't want to stop it because I felt like it was too important to listen to. It's basically the guy looking back on his life and the love for baseball. You can just feel it in his voice. And he will surely, surely be le- be missed. He uh, certainly left an impression and a standard in baseball broadcasting. So, to Tim McCarver, I say, rest in peace, Godspeed, and time will not dim the glory of your deeds. You know, just really sad news. And I will certainly miss McCarver. And I'm proud to have a short profile of the man to add to our collection of ballplayers here at Backwards K-Pod. And... Wouldn't you know it, like an old 1970s radio DJ hitting that post. I see we are now pulling up in western Pennsylvania. Uh, in the year of our Lord, 1874. And before we dig into the life and times of the Flying Dutchman, I want you to try to imagine 1874. And... This is how far we go back when we talk about baseball in the United States. There is political strife, 
expansionism, a young country, not even 100 years old, still fighting growing pains. Uh, check this out, Big uh, Gage. It's the year that armed Democrats seized the Texas government ending radical reconstruction. Wow. Almost sounds familiar to the, you know, I'm just saying. It's just crazy, right? 16 black Americans awaiting trial were kidnapped from a Gibson County jail in Trenton, Tennessee. They were eventually lynched. And the National Women's Christian Temperance Movement Union is organized in Cleveland, which, you know, this is going to serve as a precursor to the Prohibition era in about 50 years. Uh, There were also other things going on historically in the baseball universe that year as well. Uh, The young but growing sport of baseball is played for the first time in England at Lord's Cricket Grounds. Uh, There were also some rule changes that made social media of the day blow up with howls of protest. I mean, the batter's box was officially adapted. There was also a rule banning betting on the game. If a player bet on his team, now listen to this Pete Rose apologist. If you bet on your team, you are expelled. And any player betting on any other team forfeits his pay. So you can imagine, you know, 1874, Facebook, Twitter, it's blowing up. Now, baseball's trying to tell them where they have to stand and they can't bet. You know, what is this bullshack, man? Stop messing with the game. Obviously, I I jest, tongue-in-cheek. I'm simply relating it to the last few weeks where Major League Baseball has made some changes to the game. Uh, You know, but there's also, you know, know, everybody's freaking out. You know, it's crazy. Everybody just needs to calm down. But there's also something else happening in 1874 that would impact the national pastime forever. Johans. Peter Wagner. He was born about six miles southwest of downtown Pittsburgh in a tiny borough known as Chartiers on February 28, 1874 to Katrina and Peter Wagner. He was one of five sons, four daughters in the tight-knit German-American family. The, uh, the Wagners, boys as a unit, they were all strapping lads with athletic ability, but Albert Wagner Hannes' older brother was considered to be the best ball player in the bunch. And he's the first one to go pro in the family. And in 1895, when his interstate league team in Steubenville, Ohio, needed players to fill out the roster, Albert recommends his little brother. And sidebar here. Uh, We've spoken about Steubenville, Ohio before. It's the birthplace of Moses Fleetwood Walker, who we believe may have been one of the, if not the first, self-admitted black man to play professional baseball. We covered his life here at Backwards K Pod. You can find that Moses Fleetwood Walker show on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, to hear his story or any other shows. And I have him in my always-growing archives. And I also found out that in his backwoods Steubenville there, they produced some of the wildest range of athletes and celebrities this country has ever known. Not just Fleet Walker, but musical acts like 70s funk rock band Wild Cherry, Rally Fingers, Dean Martin, the mother forking Rizza from the Will. I mean, it's unbelievable. If you ever want to have your mind blown, 
Uh, go to your Google machine. Google famous people from Steubenville, Ohio. It's an amazing that all the artists and athletic influence that town has had on American culture. But I digress. Where was I? Okay, so a roster spot opens up on his brother's uh, Albert's team. He tells the team, "My kid brother can play a little bit." He comes in for the tryout. They sign Hannes. His first year of pro ball was an adventure that saw him play on five teams. Um, three leagues, 80 games. He played every position with the exception of catcher. And as you would expect, he decimated pitching wherever he played. He finished with a 372 average that year. And he absolutely clowned that league. As Edward Burrow... The owner, promoter, man of many hats for the Wheeling West Virginia team in the Iron and Oil League. He had his eye on this young Hannes, and he recruited him to play in his Atlantic League team in Patterson, New Jersey. It was there that Wagner again displayed this amazing versatility and his athletic profile. And he literally played wherever the team needed him. He batted 313 with power and speed. And he followed that year, uh, that first year in Patterson, with a 74-game campaign in 1897 that saw him hit 375. At this point, Edward Burrow knows it's it's only a matter of time before this baseball-hitting freak gets poached from him. So, he contacts friends within the Louisville Colonels organization. They're coming off a brutal last-place finish in the 1896 National League season. Uh, that year they went 38-93. Oy vey. Burrow persuaded club president Barney Dreyfus, club secretary Harry Pulliam, and player manager Fred Clark to come to Patterson and watch this kid Hannes Wagner play. Now, neither Dreyfus, the club president, nor the player manager Fred Clark were really that impressed. Uh, in the hottest, they saw uh, a man who was oddly built. Uh, he kind of looked like a slab of granite with legs and arms. Five foot eleven with a barrel chest, two hundred pounds, massive shoulders, heavily muscle muscled, uh, defined vascular arms, huge hands for someone of such short stature, and. He had these incredibly bowed legs that not only robbed him of height vertically, but it deprived his speedy game from having like this semblance of grace. Uh, kind of think about, you know, Vlad Guerrero. I mean, that dude was so fast, but he wasn't very graceful, right? He looked like a three-legged antelope. Dreyfus and Clark... Uh, they protested. He, you know, he just doesn't look like a baseball player to me. He'll never make it. But the club secretary Harry Pullian, he convinces the two to give Hannes a shot. And if you think about it, pretty amazing to think that a club secretary could have that much pull and influence over a player development and scouting and drafting, you know, uh, signing or really, you know, any major decision on a major league team. Uh, a club president, but. Here, we see it in 1897, so club secretary, you know, must be a pretty high uh, rank in the front office. You know, it's not really called a front office yet. And we see that here in 1897, and 
Thank God the club secretary straightened those two baseball experts out, right? I mean, real butterfly effect moment. Maybe. And, of course, we all know. The club secretary was right. This awkward-looking man was unquestionably the best pure athlete in the white majors. And thankfully, I had a chance to see some Hannes Wagner live video action on YouTube. His playing career is over. He's a little more odd-looking as he has added a few pounds, but he's still spry enough to hang with these young pirates at the time, and you really get a glimpse into Wagner's template of skills. To see him in his straight-up-and-down stance was to witness the raw power of a dead ball era player. He he swung a bat that was well over 40 ounces. Like Ty Cobb, Hannes Wagner deployed a hands apart grip on his bat. It wasn't as radical as Ty's, whose hands were separated by a good four inches or so. But Wagner learned to adjust his grip on the fly, pitch by pitch, depending on what he was looking for. Uh, if he was looking inside and trying to pull that pitch, he would slide his top hand down to almost touch his bottom hand. And if he wanted to slap at holes, he would widen the grip to pot, depending on you know which hole he was shooting for. And while we never see this hands-apart grip in today's game, it is worth noting that it was once the popular grip in the early parts of the 20th century as Hannes and Ty Cobb would win 20 batting titles and they would accumulate about 7,600 hits between those two using that split grip. But, again, Hannes, he's more than just a hitter. He is an athletic monster of his day with crazy speed. He was a believer that Extreme arm motion gave him speed. So, in the old videos, I, I see Hannes running the bases with abandon. And his arms are whirling like Michael Phelps winning the freestyle goal. Uh, gold. And yes, it looks unusual by classic baseball standards. But he seems to be pretty fucking efficient doing what he's doing. He stole over 700 bags in his career. He legged out almost 900 doubles and triples. And because of this daring speed and above-average base running skill, he earned the moniker the Flying Dutchman early in his career. It also helped that German composer Richard Wagner, same last name spelling, just with the hard German V. Well, Wagner had written an opera, an opera named The Flying Dutchman. Now, the... Wagner was a sight to see in the field. He had such big hands for a diminutive feller. He literally had paws. And sometimes it was hard to even tell if he was wearing gloves out there. And so, these gloves back then at the turn of the century, they, they resembled leather pancakes that prevented hand injury more than a baseball glove that we know and love today. So, for better feel and mobility, Hannes would cut a hole in the palm of his glove and take out all the stuffing. And he's practically playing defense barehanded. He has uh, quick feet, which, trust me, you're going to need that on the left side of the infield. He had stupid, crazy range. So much so... Uh, that sometimes he believed in his athletic ability a little too much, 
and he would get errors on plays that only guys, you know, like Ozzy, The Blade, Omar, only only plays that those guys could pull off. And sometimes he would annoy manager Fred Clark by taking his time and catching the runner down that first baseline by just a step. And honestly, Hannes Wagner's only weakness were probably his big feet. <laughs> I mean, he had some big sailboats there. And sometimes they got in his way defensively. Other than that, in the field, at the plate, in the damn new fangled batter's box, and on the bases, Wagner wasn't pretty, but his shit was lethal. In 1898, Wagner plays 151 games for Louisville. Batting in the first, second, and third spots in the lineup all year. He hits 299. That's going to be the last time he would hit under 300 until 1914. The Colonels improved to two games under 500 in 1899. Going 75 and 77 in large part due to the stellar play of Hannes Wagner. So, on the precipice of the new millennium, Major League Baseball would go through some changes after the 1999 season. That would impact the National League and every player in it. National League officials, they reduced league membership from 12 charter teams down to 8. And yes, folks, again, angry screams were heard on Facebook. Why are they interfering with the game? (laughs) And look, I know I'm being kind of nutty about this, but I'm just illustrating how much the game has evolved and seen rule changes. But look, whatever happens, the game is going to incorporate them and it's going to move on. I'm not saying some of these rule changes on the surface today are good or bad or whatever. But I think our culture today is way, way too hypersensitive to change. Some things I like, some things I don't. And look, some things I didn't like initially, I wanted up liking in the end, like the wild cards. It's been better for the game. I was totally wrong on that. So, I think we all, as seam heads, we need to step back, take a deep breath, and let's see how the game incorporates these game changes before we make some assumptions. Maybe the powers that be are right. Now I'm wrong. It's possible, right? Their presumption is that games take too long and they want to attract a bigger fan base. And they feel like they can do that if the pace of play is quicker. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm skeptical of this theory, but I'm willing to let it play out. And if it gets more eyes back on baseball, then I don't care. I'm in. But... We need time to see how it works over a period of time. Everyone needs to take a deep fucking breath or don't watch and force baseball to go back to hitting their bottom by, by hitting their bottom line. The money. Alright, alright, I digress. So anyway, going back to the NL. It goes from twelve to eight teams, and that saw the Louisville Colonels dissolve. So, Barney Dreyfus, he, he's not the type of guy who just, you know, throws his baby in the uh, piranha pool to watch, a, you know, the bubble show and then laments how great that kid was. No. Instead, he buys stock in the Pittsburgh Pirates and with some clever and maybe unscrupulous 
business maneuverings. He becomes club president. He then does a total reboot to the organization, cutting the unproductive players on the current roster and replacing them with the top players from the Louisville club. And of course, Hannes, being the best of the best players on his colonels, he's the premier player of the exodus from Kentucky that is now taking him back home to Pittsburgh. So, Hannes Wagner and the new look 1900 Pittsburgh Pirates they responded, finishing second behind the Brooklyn Superboss for the NL Pennant. And Wagner rewards his hometown fans with a season for the ages, to me. It's probably his second best season statistically. Many would say his best season was 1908. Uh, you know, all of his seasons are sick, but this first year in the Berg, it, it's ridiculous. And I'm... Not going to give you in-depth steps from every year. But uh, let's take a look at that 1900 season. Hannes Wagner's first in his hometown Pirates gear. So let's see here. Hannes Wagner. 1900 season. First year back home with Pittsburgh. He had a 6.9 war. 135 games, 580 plate appearances. His 302 total bases that led the National League. And you guys know by now, I'm a huge proponent of total bases. It's probably my favorite offensive stat. And look, 302 of them, that absolutely makes me horny, baby. Yeah. He led the NL in doubles with 45, triples with 22. You heard me, folks. 22 triples. Eat that. He also led the NL in 1900 with a 3.98 average, a 5.73 slug, a 1.007 OPS, and a 176 OPS plus. I mean, it's truly one of the greatest segregated dead ball era seasons ever. So, all those things. He led the National League in doubles, triples, average, slug, OPS, OPS plus, total bases. But wait, there's more. He scored 107 runs, ranked. I uh, ranked down 201 hits, dropped down four times, 100 RBIs, 38 stolen bases, 41 walks. He only struck out 17 times, folks. Again, 580 plate appearances. Good brothers and sisters, 17 strikeouts. And a 434 OPP, one of the greatest statistical baseball seasons ever. Certainly, I mean, you know, one of the best of his era for sure. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a 1900 season for the Flying Dutchman, Hannes Wagner. And look, the truth is, this decade, from 1900 to 1909, it, it belonged to Hannes. He owned it like a pimp. He finished the decade off by leading that span in every offensive stat except for triples, where he finished second in the decade to Sam Crawford of the Reds and the Tigers, and he was fifth in home runs. And a summary of Wagner's year-by-year hitting accolades reads as follows. Seven-time batting champ. 
Led the NL four times in OVP, slugging six times. Runs twice. Only led the league once in hits, which that surprises me a little bit. Six teams, uh, six times he set the league standard for total bases. Seven times he paced the league in doubles, three times for triples, four times for RBIs, five times he led the league in stealing. So, I'm trying to draw this picture to you. In your mind, what the first Major League Baseball superstar looks like. It's a short dude who looks a little funny, but he's totally ripping the baseball establishment apart with his glove, defense abilities, and sick. Sick ass stick. The only thing he doesn't do regularly is drop dog, but that's not the game yet for another decade. And to be fair, he is comparable to the best dead ball power hitters of his day, as he did finish fifth in home runs from 1900 to 1909. The rise of the junior circuit, American League in 1900, it triggered this bidding war. And poaching of players from rival teams. The now suddenly open and expansive market. It saw the American League effectively raid the NL for talent. And destroy a lot of these teams in the process. Wagner showed his loyalty to his hometown team and Barney Dreyfus. When he allegedly was offered $20,000 up front to play for the Chicago White Stockings. Uh, Some have questioned the veracity of that story. But... Whether it happened or is completely apocryphal, it certainly didn't hurt Wagner's relationship with Pirates fans nor his legacy. I also think it's important to tell you that $20,000 in 1900, it has the purchasing power of around $715,000 today in the 2023 economy. The Pirates would escape the American League incursions relatively unscathed, captured NL pennants in 1901, 1902, and 1903, and finally, that elusive World Series chip in 1909. Pittsburgh was the elite National League team for the first decade of the 20th century. Their 938-538 record and 636 winning percentage, it's the best during that span. It's even better than the Red Sox, who were basically, you know, baseball royalty during those years. The Pirates were an elite NL powerhouse of a team. The three-year stranglehold, it begins in 1901 when Hannes drives in 126 RBIs, the most of any season in the first decade of the 1900s, and that team would finish seven and a half games on top of Filthy. And 1902... Flying D. He leads the league in slugs, stolen base, doubles, runs, RBIs. The Buccos, they go uh, 103 and 36, winning the pennant by a still record 27 and a half game margin over Brooklyn. And the Pirates, they did have a small problem in 02. That's finding him in everyday position. He, He played every position except for catcher that year. And yes, that includes two games on the bump. Now, check it out. Hottest Wagner gave up zero earned runs. He gave up quite a few unearned runs that year. And he has the lowest ERA of any player in the Hall of Fame. An era an ERA of zero point zero. I feel like Dean Wormer from Animal House. 
So, great trivia question and answer there. That's my gift to you. Walk with God to the nearest bar and win yourself a couple drinks with that one. Hannes would finally find his home at shortstop on a permanent basis in 1903. So, Backtrack a little here. I want to make sure I give you the timeline correctly. Uh, Wagner played shortstop in 1901 for the most part. It looked like that was going to be his home from the beginning, especially after long-time Bucko shortstop Bones Ely. Oh, what a great baseball name. Bones Ely. He jumps to the American League, but Wid Conroy, that's another great name, Widow Conroy, Wid Conroy. He would take over the shortstop position in 1902, pushing Wagner to right field. And look, I'm sure many of you have probably never heard of Wid Conroy in your life. And you really should read up on that dude. Go to your Google machine and search Wid, W-I-D, Conroy. And tell me that's not one of the craziest baseball stories you've ever fucking heard. Anyway, Wid Conroy is exposed as a poaching spy for the American League. And the Pirates would release him. The club then tried Tommy Leach at shortstop with Wagner playing third, but player manager Clark would coax the two into swapping positions, and Hannes grudgingly took the shortstop position for good. Despite that minor position controversy, uh, Wagner, Wagner continued to bl- blister NL pitchers, finishing with a three fifty five batting average. The... Pirates' rotation had been weakened by the off-season defection of staff ace Jack Chesbrough, one of the most dominant hurlers of his day. He would uh, bolt the Berg to play for the New York Highlanders, whose you know we all know their destiny has become the Yankees. But even without Chesbrough, the Buccos finished ninety-one and forty-nine. They win the NL pennant, which up to this point, winning the league pennant, it's. It's ostensibly, it's like you're the champ because there's no World Series yet. Well, towards the end of the year, Pirates owner, Barney Dreyfus, he challenges the American League to a championship series at the end of the season. The winner of both of these fledging leagues would face it all to determine whose brand really was the best. And Henry Killia, the president of the AL champion Boston Americans, uh, who would eventually become the Red Sox, they accepted the challenge. And this, my CMED friends, is how the World Series was born. Now, going into that first World Series, the Pirates Clubhouse, it resembled the uh, infirmary of a mass unit, more than that of a future first world champion in baseball history. Hannes Wagner was nursing a sore right leg. Sam Lieber's arm was wrecked. Pitchered Ed DeHaney, he literally had an emotional collapse down the stretch of the season. And to reiterate, they lost staff ace Chesbro to the Highlanders. Even with all those injuries, the Pirates went into the best of nine series as the odds-on favorites amongst the gamblers. Deacon Felipe was the Pirates' only healthy pitcher. And he would throw, now listen to this, three complete game victories in games one, three, and four. Wagner went five for 14 in the first four games, driving in three runs. And look, I know there's some people out there right now bemoaning today's pitchers by saying, look, this guy threw complete three complete game victories. Now these guys nowadays are pussies. 
Well, fair enough. I hear you. But the truth is, the truth is, of course, Felipe's arm blew out. And Boston would sweep the next four games of the, uh, you know, off the strength of Cy Young and Bill Janine's pitching and the hitting of Americans, uh, third baseman Jilly, Jimmy Collins to take the first World Series title in baseball history. Of course his arm blew out. At his first, uh, after his great start in the first four games, Wagner's bat turned to ice as he went one for 14 in the final four games. Uh, he looked like shit on defense. He committed a series leading six errors. But the worst cut to Wagner's competitive being was becoming that final out of the series via the backwards K, frozen pizza style. From 1904 to 1907, the Pirates moved back and forth between second and fourth. Uh, second and fourth place. Occasionally, they would challenge the Cubbies and Giants for NL supremacy. In 1906, uh, he leads the league in doubles, runs. He also begins a four-consecutive-year streak of winning the National League batting title. And Hannes loves playing pro baseball, but he also loves his offseason. So he would routinely resist showing up to spring training or, you know, at least delay his appearance as long as he could. He absolutely loves spring training. And, I mean, I kind of get it. You know, I, I, I'm forking... You know, Hannes Wagner, I'll be ready when you need me. He would pack on extra LBs during the off-season to stay in shape. He would, you know, he loved to hunt fish. He enjoyed a new sport breaking out across America called basketball. And he played on several teams. The horseless buggy began to making its mark on American society. And Wagner was a fan of automobiling, as they called it in those days. Unfortunately for Dutch, he was more enthusiastic than he was able, as he had several mishaps while driving. Fortunately for Dutch, uh, he bought and opened a car garage to repair cars and, and sell the Regal. But Hannes was not a salesman. He, he loved tinkering, and he loved learning about engines. His huge, huge hands were always covered in mechanics grease when he was in the garage. A real seamhead gearhead. Uh, he raised chickens. He had simple tastes in life. I would consider him frugal, but not miserly. He was armed with savvy business advice from Dreyfus. And Hannes made some wise investments in real estate. He figured he was on solid financial ground. So he retired in 1907. The end. Now, look. The Pirates are, you know, they're in red alert mode here. They can't lose Wagner at the height of his baseball powers. The front office intent on keeping their star happy. They sat down to talk with him. And Hannes said, look, I'm tired. My body hurts. Maybe I just need, you know, a year off to reboot, reboot. Now, he actually said reboot. He's probably the first person that ever said it. Dreyfus refuses to panic. And he also refuses to lose a star. He, he gives Wagner a hefty pay raise to $10,000 a year, which doubled his previous salary. And it made him the highest paid player in the major leagues for the next several years. And I should note that $10,000 American dollars in 1907, and has the purchasing power of around $238,000 in this fucked up 2023 economy. <laughs> Wagner would put together his greatest baseball season in 1908. 
Bill James, a historian I respect very much. He considers Wagner's 1908 season the greatest season by a player not named Barry Bonds. Both leagues batted 239, which sounds very 2022-ish. But Hannes, he ranked. He batted 354. He settled for second in home runs and runs. He led in every other statistical category. All of them, folks. Mathematically speaking, it's a near-perfect season by baseball standards. And nothing compares to that stat line, with the exception of Barry Bonds from 2004. It wasn't enough, though, as the Pirates fell short in one of the tightest NL pennant races ever. Pirate behind two errors by Hannes. They lost the season finale to the Cubs 5-2, which... Uh, would have forced a three-way tie between the Cubs, Giants, and the Buckos. Hanna spent the offseason pissed off, and he's brooding. And by opening day 1909, he and the Pirates are, you know, they're sharks looking for blood to water. They absolutely embarrassed the National League that year, going 110 and 42 for the greatest single season in club history. They finished six games better than the Northside Cubs. And it was the first year that the Pirates played in Forbes Field. And, oh man, I can't wait. That's a stadium who is on the upcoming schedule. And I look forward to working on that, learning about Forbes Field. Wagner again set the NL standard for average slugging, on-base percentage, doubles, RBI, total bases, extra base hits. And it set the stage for Pirates versus Tigers best of seven World Series. The matchup was chock full of compelling storylines for the growing young sport. You had Detroit coming on three straight AL pennants. And, of course, you had the matchup of the two best hitters on the planet at that time. Ty Cobb, the Georgia Peach, versus Hannes Wagner, the Flying Dutchman. And the series... It didn't disappoint. It lived up to the hype. And Wagner would wash away the taste from his mouth of that demoralizing 0-3 season versus Boston. The Buckos behind pitcher Babe Adams and the hitting of Clark, Hannes, and Leach would lead Pittsburgh to their first world title. Wagner, he outplayed Cobb, batting 331 to Cobb's 231. He stole more bags, 6-2. He collected... Uh, more RBIs than the Georgia Peach 6-5. In fact, Wagner's six steals in the uh, 1909 World Series, it stood as a record until Lou Brock had seven steals in both the 1967 and 1968 World Series. For almost 60 years, that World Series record stood. The series win, it had to feel good for Hottis after being vindicated for that 0-3 debacle and proving during the series that he is comparable and maybe even better than the great Ty Cobb. On paper, the year after 1910, it looks decent, but, you know, it's, it's kind of waiting from Hannes' high lofty standards. His 320 average is his lowest since 1898. He tied teammate Bobby Byrne for the NL lead and hits with 178. The only time he would ever lead to NL in hits. That, you know, that just still, it blows me away. But the season was a disaster from the team perspective. 
The Pirates fell the third by the Cubs and the Giants. They were never seriously in the World Series conversation. And they finished the uh, distance 17 and a half games behind the Cubs. Wagner struggled defensively. He needed a late season surge to push his average over 300. And to the press and the public, the Pirates brass, they maintained that, you know, Hannes was just having an off year, struggling through the grind of a long season and age, but underneath it all, there was an open secret about Wagner, his out-of-control drinking. That year, Wagner had had more than his share of run-ins with the Elms, and he received numerous fines, ejections, suspensions, and he even had some ugly confrontations with teammates that year. The situation was reaching an almost team crisis. And Fred Clark, he had to sit Wagner down for a one-on-one and tell him in no certain certain terms, uh, you get your shit together. The only good thing that may have come from that season was the release of this T206 baseball card that commanded over a million dollars at an auction in 2001. Pirate Secretary John Gruber He's making $10 on the deal. He sold a picture of Hannes to the American Tobacco Company to reproduce into a baseball card. And then released the card by inserting, inserting them in every pack of Piedmont cigarettes. Hannes, uh, yeah, he smoked cigars, he chewed tobacco, but he was never a fan of cigarettes. And upon hearing that deal... Uh, that the team secretary made with American Tobacco Company, uh, Wagner stops the deal, and he reimburses Gruber's $10, and Wagner didn't want kids buying cigarettes to get his card, and he didn't believe that kids should have to pay money for a picture of him in the first place. The few kids that, man, uh, the few cards that managed to be released before Wa- uh, Wagner stopped production, they were quickly snapped up and they were held, making the hottest Wagner T206 baseball card the holy grail and the most highly praised sports card on record. Hannes had his last big dominant season in 1911 and 1912, winning his final two batting title and uh, batting title in 1911 while finishing second in the NL and RBIs. His 300 batting average in 1913 would be the last time that he would reach that level. Wagner and the club, they began to decline decline together. The Buccos fell to 7th in 1914 as Hannes hit a paltry 252. On June 9th, 1914, Wagner became the first player in the 20th century to have 3,000 hits when he smacks a double off Bill's pitcher Erskine Meyer. In 1915, the team slightly rebounds with a fifth place finish, and Hannes has his last hurrah as a pro. He played in 156 games, had 32 doubles, 17 triples as well, and he drove in 78 runs. On July 29, 1915, he drops Grand Salami Dong all over Brooklyn pitcher's Jem Pfeffer's lips. And at 41 years old, it is presumed at the time that he was the oldest player to hit a Grand Slam. Players manager Fred Clark, he called it a career after 1915. Trifers brings in Jimmy Callahan to take the helm of the Pirates ship, but the club would finish in 6th place with Wagner's modest 287 average, still good enough for 8th best in the National League. On December 31st, he would marry Bessie Bain Smith, a woman he had been dating for years. 
Wagner is becoming comfortable in his domestic life. And he's starting to question if he has it in him to keep playing. Bessie's cooking is the bomb. And it's it's having an effect on his waistline. He was no longer interested in working out or hunting in the offseason. And the season started out okay, but Hottis and the Pirates began to realize that, you know, the run's over, and all good things must end. Wagner bats 267 in 75 games. The club fires Callahan. They offer Wagner the opportunity to be a player manager. Wagner, out of loyalty, accepts. But after going 1-4 in the first five games, he tells Dreyfus, yeah, this ain't for me. He played his last game on September 17th. When he played three innings at second base. After retirement, the Wagners were awaiting the birth of their first child. Tragically, Elva Katrina was stillborn on January 9, 1918. Hannes dealt with this grief by throwing himself into his work, traveling from state to state, urging Americans to invest in Liberty Bonds. Betty Bain Wagner was born December 5th, 1919, followed by Virginia Jeannie May on May 3rd, 1922. And Hannes was, you know, a doting father. He took his girls everywhere with him. He taught them how to play baseball. And he always called them my boys. His daughter Betty would marry Henry Blair in 1948. And they would present Hannes and Bessie a granddaughter and their only descendant, Leslie Ann. Wagner's post-playing career was filled with many ups and downs. He held political jobs as a state fish commissioner and the sergeant-at-arms for the Pennsylvania Legislative Branch. He brought properties around the Carnegie Building, and he made uh, pretty good income from his rental properties. He, he coached the Carnegie High School football team as well as the Carnegie Institute of Technology. It's now called the Carnegie Mellon University baseball and basketball teams. He had a prominent, successful sporting goods store that bore his name. But Hannes lacked business sense. And he got into bed with some less than ideal partners. And he ran into some trouble. The Great Depression had hit the Wagner family hard. William Benswanger, the son-in-law of Barty Dreyfus, who recently died, um, he took over the Pirates' ownership after Barty's death. Upon hearing of Wagner's tough go-around after the Depression, he offers Hannes a coaching job in 1933 for the Pittsburgh Pirates. His first task is to make a young, slugging Archie Vaughn into a big league shortstop. And Vaughn admired Hannes and took his teaching seriously. Seriously enough to go all the way to the fucking Hall of Fame. He would become a father figure to the young and new era buckos. He chatted it up with all the fans. He loved to spin yards about the old days. And he would hold a coaching job in the organization until his final retirement in 1951. The grandest moment in Hannes' life after Bessie and the boys was his induction in the inaugural class of the 1939 Baseball Hall of Fame. It's widely considered the greatest class ever. Joining Hannes was AL rival Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Christy Matthewson, and Walter Johnson. The five charter members were inducted on June 12, 1939, and I can only imagine watching those five dudes sitting around reminiscing on days gone by. Wagner lived out the remainder of his life for the most part sequestered to his home in Carnegie. He made his last public appearance 
public appearance on April 30th, 1955, at the unveiling of a statue of himself that would stand in Shenley Park outside of Forbes Field. It's a 10-foot-high statue that sits atop a granite base, and it's the image of Hannes following through with that powerful swing, following the flight of the ball. When Crosley Field shut down, the stadium was moved to Three Rivers, where it greased uh, that entranceway. Now it greets visitors to PNC Park at the main entrance of the Pirates' current crib. And I've seen the statue. I've touched it. It's very special. In fact, I'm going to be honest with you. All those statues outside of PNC, they're outstanding. They're some of the best baseball statues I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Hannes, beset by age, illness, and injuries. Hannes Wagner died in his Carnegie home on December 6, 1955, less than an hour after celebrating his wife's birthday with her. He was buried at Jefferson Memorial Cemetery in Pleasant Hills, Pennsylvania, which is just south of the Berg. Wagner, he wasn't pious. He wasn't an angel. He wasn't a saint. Some rivals thought Hannes, Hannes was a gentleman off the diamond, but a little rough on it. He had a contentious relationship with a few of the NL umpires, and he was not a pleasure to be around when he was drunk. But Hannes was the embodiment of the American dream. For a young country still trying to find a place in this brave new world, here's the son of a German uh, immigrant's who rose from humble roots to become one of the legendary ball players that ever did it. The first superstar of baseball. And look, frailties and flaws aside, he remains one of the first baseball heroes in our conscience. He is the classic, gentle, hardworking dude, the guy who loved and supported his teammates treated youngsters kindly, he dealt with adversity, he overcame it, he inspired millions of people. In his life, he was devoted to baseball, his hometown Pittsburgh, his wife Bessie, his boys, and Leslie Ann. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to end this week. Man, what, what a life. I, I tell you, very inspiring, right? And I told you last week, as a stat nerd, I have always known about his prolific numbers and his gaudy stats, but I never really knew his story. So, now I can say that I know his story, and I'm proud to add it to our collection of ballplayers here at BKP. Before I jump out of here, I would be remiss if I didn't give you the final stat line for this baseball icon. And I learned that there are only four, four Major League Baseball players in the history of baseball that have museums for just their accomplishments alone. Those players are Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, Roberto Clemente, who has two, one in Pittsburgh and one in his homeland of Puerto Rico, and the other one is Hannes Wagner, who, like Roberto, has a museum located in the Pittsburgh area. So... All my friends in Pennsylvania, and I got quite a few. I don't know how as a Ravens fan, I got all these close friends in the hardest Steeler country. But it's true. I, I want to loathe these cork suckers, but I, I just can't. They're some of my truest friends in life. So, look, 
All y'all, all yins need to do is load up the rod, grab a few of them Iron City beers, and head on out to the hottest Wagner Museum to learn about this monster. Let's take a look at the final stats of one of the greatest guys, greatest players who ever did. Hottest Wagner, the Flying Dutchman. They finished with a 130.8 war. 21-year career for the Louisville Colonels and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Good Lord, man, this guy is ridiculous. 2,794 games. 11,716 plate appearances. 4,870 career total bases. 1,753 runs scored. Good God, I'm getting tired just spitting it out to you. 3,420 hits. Again, he's the first player to match 3,000 hits in the 20th century. And he wasn't just a singles hitter. He amassed 643 career doubles, 252 triples, 101 home runs, which, 101 home runs, that's a lot for a dead ball era player. You feel me? 1,732 RBI, 723 stolen bases, 963 walks, 735 strikeouts. And he finished. Listen to this. 103, 28, 3, 91, 4, 67, slash in your face. An 858 OPS and a 151 OPS plus. In 1936, he's elected into the National Baseball uh, Hall of Fame, Cooperstown, New York. And look, if you're looking for a ball player to compare him with, you know, statistically, I suggest dudes like, you know, Napoleon Lazaway, Eddie Collins, and of course, Tyrus Raymond Cott. And there you have it, folks. The life and times of the fine Dutchman, Hannes Wagner. What an amazing ball player. And he should never be forgotten. I'm glad I had the opportunity to learn about this guy and present him on this platform here. And hey, I just hope you enjoyed listening to the story as much as I enjoyed telling it. And there's all kinds of stuff out there if you want to learn about Hannes Wagner. A lot of cool stuff on YouTube. Like, actual film of him as a coach working out with the Pirates. Uh, video of him and his last public appearance outside of Forbes Field at that statue ceremony where uh, he's too weak to leave the car. They have actual speeches from him on YouTube. So, if you're looking for a rabbit hole to jump into, there's plenty of stuff on YouTube to make that happen. And now, with Hottest Wagner, down now in the uh, collection of ball players here, I can see him getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, and I now chop the head of our baseball hydra, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. And I told you, at the beginning of the show, that I'm going to be diving into uh, our stadium show next week. We're going to get back to the stadiums, baby. And it's special for me as 
Uh, well, we're going to cover the history of Royal Park at Camden Yards, baby. And growing up in the charm, I have an intimate knowledge about this structure. Watching it grill in front of my face as, you know, I literally witnessed a shift in the paradigm as the way we as fans are going to consume baseball in the future. Camden Yards was a game-changing structure. Uh, it's impacted every, every stadium built after her. She changed the game forever. And next week, I can't wait to tell her story. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, the weather's starting to break. It's getting nicer and nicer outside. Now, look at your kid. He's eating junk food. He's got his nose in a phone, living unproductive AF. By all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. Godspeed, Tom McCar- Tim McCarver. And... Like my man Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one interview last week. You go to hell, Independent. See you mother-forking sea meds next week. Peace.